Please be seated and turn in your scriptures to Genesis chapter 12. It's also printed in your bulletins as well. Genesis chapter 12, as we continue our series, uh, Secure Gospel Promises for Anxious Times. So as the weather gets warmer, we're getting closer to pool season. Any pool people in the house? Um, when my kids were younger, I, I remember I would get into the pool first and uh, invite them to jump in. And sometimes they would hesitate. They would stand on the edge of the pool and like hesitating, muscles tensed and uh, heart pounding. And what if it's too cold and it's so deep in there? And are you actually going to catch me? And I would cajole and I would invite and I would say, I'm going to catch you and it's going to be okay. No matter how deep it is, we're going to be here together. We're going to splash around. And within a second, you won't feel cold anymore. It'll feel normal. And then finally, there would come the moment where they would launch themselves into the air and make a big splash. And I didn't even need to catch them because they sort of bubbled up to the surface and poked their head above the water triumphantly. And we'd have a good old time. And usually then that would lead to more jumping. And it would just be jumping for the whole pool time. Um, the roles are reversed now. So do you, they're, they're getting into the pool now first and they're inviting me to jump in and I'm the one hesitating. There's a picture of our life with God of call and response. God calls and we respond. God calls us to jump in the water, as it were, to join the mission, to take risks with him, to lay down our lives so that we can find our lives in him. And every single time, he promises to catch us. He promises to secure us. He promises to be with us and to hold us. And if only we would jump and respond, we would know the thrill of walking with God, the thrill of living with the living God, of partnering with him and fulfilling our calling by his power. But we hesitate a lot of times. I find myself hesitating on the edge of the pool when God calls because it feels safer up here. It seems safer up here with no risk and no sacrifice. Um, and the, uh, the security of what I have feels like I cannot give it up. There is a danger, my friends, of God calling and us never responding, of us never jumping. Um, sometimes we don't call. There have been times when God has prompted me to do something and I have not done it. And I have regretted that, but I've never regretted saying yes. I've never regretted jumping in. I've never regretted the mess and the miracles of the call of God. It is a chilling thought to think that we could become, you and I, we could become distant strangers to the living God. He could call and we could never respond. We could know about him. We could know theology lessons. But it may be the case that we would never respond and we would never know that he's a provider, that we would never know that he's still alive, that we would never know that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It is possible for us to not respond to the call of God. And so sometimes when we come to moments like we're in as a church, when we are considering things like financial sacrifice for a greater vision, a greater call as a church. It's helpful actually to hear some stories of people who struggled with the call, who struggled to respond, and who found God to be faithful and found him to be true. 
And so we're going to read a story about a man who did jump into the pool. He did respond to the call of God, and that is Abram, later known as Abraham. And as we look at Genesis 12, we see that it always begins with the call of God. God calls Abraham or Abram in verse 1 of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. This is so significant. God is calling Abram to leave behind three things that made up his whole world, his whole life. First of all, his country. Now this was the land that Abram lived in and likely owned a portion of. It's where his father lived. It's where likely his father's father lived and his great-grandfather and great-grandfather. In the ancient world, this was Abram's inheritance. This was his livelihood, and this is where he grew up and where he was expected to live his life and die and pass on to his descendants as well. God also calls him from his kindred, which is um, his whole tribe, his family, all of the relationships, the safety, the tradition, the livelihood, um, the interdependence that he had, which was very, very good. In the ancient world, land and family made up almost your entire life. And then um, God is saying, hey, look, I'm going to draw a circle around all of this and everything that it represents, your inheritance, your security, your sense of identity. And I'm going to ask you to give all of this to me. I'm going to ask you to put all of this on the altar for me. I want you to go, Abraham. I want you to go and to leave, leave land, leave family, leave life as you know it. It is a type of death that God is calling Abraham to. And it reminds me of the words of Jesus in our gospel text today. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his or her life loses it, and whoever hates his or her life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Or in the words of an Anglican leader from the country of Sudan, a Christianity that costs us nothing is not biblical. Why do we love things in this life too much? What do we love in this life too much? If the Lord were to draw a circle around the things that we love too much, what would he draw a circle around and say, hey, look, I want all of this on the altar. We're different. We're in a different circumstance than Abram and Sarai, his wife. But we still got things in the circle. For us, it could just be comfort or security or influence or personal freedom, being liked and admired, achievement, achievement for ourselves, achievement for our kids. These are deep, deep things in our culture, and it's hard to let go of them. Now, what's one thing in our culture that can unlock almost every single one of those realities? Comfort, achievement, being liked, freedom. It's money. It's money. Even just having it stored away can make us feel secure. But also, we can use money to be liked and admired, to achieve to have influence, to have personal freedom. And in his grace, God calls his people often to part 
with their money and to do so willingly and to sacrifice it. Why would he do that? Is God stingy? Is he a meanie? Is he a downer? Now, God calls us to part with our money because he is teaching us through personal experience that he is the provider. God is a provider in a way that money could never be, my friends. But there's a way that we can learn this, and that is not in the abstract as ideas, but through the personal experience of willingly putting our money on the altar and saying, God, I trust you to provide. Because at the end of the day, we will be able to say this. We will be able to say a testimony. God asked me to sacrifice what I had, my money, my father's household, my security, whatever it might be. And then I had nothing, as it were, or I had a lot less. And then God provided everything and more. He surprised me with what he provided. And now I know that he is the true and living God. And I will trust him in life and I will trust him in death. It's one thing to know that in the abstract. It's another thing to tell your own story of God's provision. Have you ever had that experience? It will change your life. You'll never be the same. You know what it will do to our hearts? Tenderize our hearts to our Father who can provide for us. It will teach us that he loves even the most intricate little needs that we have, or even sometimes the wants and the hopes. We will see that he is watching over us, caring for us, leading us like a good shepherd. And that's how it worked for Abram. He called Abram to sacrifice. And then he gave a surprise to Abraham. And the surprise was a land that I will show you. God has a land, an invitation for Abram to discover a hand-picked surprise from God himself, which was a place that God had prepared for Abram. And then in the process of receiving that land, Abraham's life will change because there's more surprises ahead for Abram that we can read about in verses two and three. The Lord God said, I will make of you a great nation. Pause. He was childless. He was 75 years old and his wife was beyond childbearing years. All right, so here's another audacious promise from God. I will make of you a great nation. He continues, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Can you imagine receiving that promise from God? I'm asking you to give up your father and your father's land and all of the provisions there so that I can become your father and I can provide all of those things for you. And not only that, you are going to be a blessing to every family on the face of the earth. Isn't that incredible? I will protect you from their curses and I will make you a blessing for them. And so if Abram can only leave on the altar everything that made him feel secure and jump into the arms of God, what did God have for him? Blessing and life and actually a great calling that continues to ripple into our day as well. Through Abram would come Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, King David, the nation of Israel, and one day Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. If only Abram would jump into the hands of God. God calls Abraham, empty your hands so that I can fill them. Open wide your mouth, as the psalmist says, so that I can fill it with the finest of wheat and fill your hands with land that you can settle in, not just wander in, 
I'll give you a family, Abram, that blesses the world, not just survives and scrapes by. I'll give you care and favor and legacy beyond what you can ask or imagine. There will be so many surprises and so many miracles and so many provisions. But first, Abraham must sacrifice. He must leave what is known and seen in order to receive what is unknown and unseen. And this is the life of faith. Just imagine for a moment if Abram had never jumped because it was too risky. Because did God really say that? Because of the wife, uh, his wife's facial expression when he told her the news of what God said. Or what if my father would disown me if I left? Or it's crazy to think about starting over at this age, 75 years old. There's no way that we could do this. There's no way that we could have kids. There's no way that we could lead them. There's no way that we could um, have a new land, one that we can't even see right now. I had a friend who was wrestling with God about planting a church on the south side of Chicago. And he felt God calling him to do it, and he kept hesitating, and they wrestled together for a long time. And at one point in his prayer, he felt the Lord say this, if you don't do this, I'm going to ask someone else to do it. So he jumped, and he planted that church. And about a year later, my friend was standing inside the baptismal font, larger than the one we have here, with, with unbeliever after unbeliever baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he told me, Aaron, there's nothing like that. God called, my friend responded with obedience. And you know what? So did Abram. Abram jumped. Abram responded. Verse four. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Here is Abram's obedience, plain and simple. God called, Abraham responded. Abram takes his wife, his nephew Lot, and his whole caravan, about 400 miles from Haran to Canaan. This is a month of travel in the ancient world. Costly, dusty, one foot after the other in the hot sand. And do you think that, you know, maybe he ever doubted himself? Maybe Sarah doubted herself. Like, what are we doing even now? Why are we sacrificing? Why are we taking all of these steps? Why did we sacrifice? Where are we going? What is the land that God will show us? Then we know from other parts of Abram's story that Abram was really prone to fear and doubt. He actually sinned in the process of obeying. He struggled. But you know, at the end of the day, Abram said yes to God. And Sarai said yes to God. Now, along the way, Abram finds a high and holy place. And you know what? Maybe he was needing to hear a word from the Lord. Maybe he needed some kind of assurance, some kind of invitation just to know that God was with him. And verse six says this, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Morah. Um, and this was uh, up on a mountain, up on a hill. And also, side note, at that time, Canaanites were in the land. What's going on here? Abram finds himself surrounded by Canaanites. These are people that are, as we know in other parts of scripture, devoted to foreign gods such as Baal and Ashtoreth. These are people that some of whom God will bless through Abram. They will um, join the covenant that God makes with Abram and, um, and with Israel. But some of these Canaanites are evil and they will curse Abram and curse Sarai 
Now, if I were Abram, I would be hoping for a less complicated blessing. Right? Um, like, maybe I can just keep going and there will be a land not populated by Canaanites. I wouldn't have to sort through the blessings and the curses. But the Lord has something else for Abram, which he says in verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram as he was up on that mountain and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. To your offspring, I will give this land. Yes, Abram, you've come to the land. I'm showing it to you now. Surprise, there are Canaanites in it. But Abram doesn't just respond with obedience to this call. He responds with a sense of openness. At the end of verse seven, it says, so he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So there it is again. God is calling. Abram is responding. And on that Judean hill, Abram builds a humble little altar on that humble hill. And maybe he offers up a humble prayer. Lord, I have no idea what you're doing. I have no, I'm in a foreign land. I don't know anybody here. I don't know how you're going to provide. I don't know how you're going to bring us children. I don't know how you're going to make us a great nation. I don't know how all the blessing and the cursing is going to work out with the Canaanites. I don't even know if I'm going to live to see another day. But I offer you everything. And I trust you afresh. And I'm building the altar here to worship you and to offer you my whole life and renew the commitment I have to you today. Now, centuries later, one of Abram's descendants would leave his father, leave his home, leave his heavenly inheritance, and he would climb a humble Judean hill. And he would be surrounded by enemies who would curse him. And yet he came to bless them, to draw them and all people to himself. God the Father called Jesus Christ, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus Christ responded with obedience and openness, stretching out his arms of love on the hard wood of the cross. And Jesus Christ invites all of us who have ourselves backed away from the invitation of God. Everyone who has shrunk back from God's invitation or run from God's invitation or have refused God or outright cursed God, he invites us to come home to the Father, to be forgiven, uh, to be blessed again, to receive mercy, to be restored and healed. And then to pass on the sacrifice that we have been given, um, to find grace to give a gift in Jesus' name and bless the world and forgive those who have cursed us and walk the way of obedience to God's call on our life. God's grace walked with Abraham as he journeyed on. Verse eight, from there, Abram moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. I love how this ends. Verse nine, the ambiguity of it, the unfinished nature of it. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. Abram journeyed on. How does the story end? Abram doesn't know at this point. He just keeps going. Keeps sleeping in tents. He keeps putting one foot in front of the other in obedience to the Lord. He keeps building altars. He keeps praying. He keeps hoping. Uh, one scholar paints the picture this way. As Abram sits alone and vulnerable in his tent, the promises are in shambles. No land, no family, 
nothing that looks remotely like blessing. Just, you know, just being in the presence of God and just obeying God. Yet because he responded to the call, what miracles would await Father Abraham? The descendants like the stars in the sky, including you and me, my friend. The victories against his enemies, the visitation of angels. What about the birth of his son, Isaac? And what about the miraculous saving of his son, Isaac, uh, when he was offered up? But mostly, what did Abram get? He got the opportunity to walk with the living God and to personally experience God provide for him and love him and lead him. And he could stand before the living God and say, I will obey you no matter what it costs, and I will give you whatever you ask. There's nothing like the journey of standing before the living God and saying, you get everything that I have, and I will receive everything that you will provide. When COVID hit, my friend's church plant on the south side was one of its casualties. And I asked him recently, I said, like, do you regret it? Do you regret planting the church? Do you know what he said? Absolutely not. He said what I thought was a church plant ended up being a three-year mission trip that bore much fruit. And I'm so grateful that he went on that mission trip in Chicago, aren't you? For every single one of the people who had no idea who Jesus Christ was brought into the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because, uh, because my friend just said yes to God. In the end, we will never say, regret saying yes to the living God. Now for you and I, if you're part of Emmanuel, I want to talk to you here. Because the Lord God has, has called us to follow him in Chicago, to be his disciples, to be his hands and feet. We have a unique call in our church to, to build and become a spiritual beacon church that makes the gospel personal, visible, and tangible to the people of Chicago. And this week, we all considered how much we would be able to sacrifice financially to fulfill that call. We looked at our personal finances together. We prayed, and many of us jumped into the arms of God. We really did. And I, um, I don't know all the details of these gifts, just the bottom line number, and I can't wait to share it with you during announcements. It represents so much faith, so much openness, so much willingness to follow the Lord. God called, my friends, and we responded. And I'm so proud of this church. No matter what happens next, we, we're still in his hands. We're still in his arms. We're still following him. I don't know how everything will turn out, but I do know that he's good and that we can depend on him for every single thing that we need and that we will be able to worship the living God and say, you showed yourself to us specifically that you are a provider and that you are our good shepherd and that you are our father. And we can always trust you in life and in death. Now, Bishop Stewart has jumped into the arms of God more times than I can count. Many, many times. And he has a testimony this morning about God providing for him and for Church of the Resurrection. And um, so, Bishop Stewart, come on up. Let's welcome our bishop. He's here with us with the testimony. Thank you, Father Aaron. Thank you for feeding us with the word of God. That's a gift that a pastor teaches you God's word, verse by verse. Praise the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's a joy to be here. Catherine's here with me, um, which is joy. She's 
able to come to more stuff with me as our, our, some of our kids are getting older. We still have a few kids at home. A couple of thoughts. First of all, what an amazing pilgrimage the Lord has you on as you're praying and seeking him about a permanent church home. Uh, your sister churches throughout the diocese, many of them have either been on this pilgrimage or on this pilgrimage. It's a joy to watch story after story of the power of God. And I pray that more than anything, you will have a testimony to tell the generations that come after you about the power of God. The building is just an Ebenezer. It's just a way along the way. It's very important, but more important will be your testimony. And it looks like God's opening up a testimony that's powerful. I look forward to hearing more details. Uh, Father, did, Aaron did ask me just to give a quick testimony about a time when we've sort of been faced with a big sacrifice, perched on the edge of the pool, and God has said, jump, and he is right. Like many of you probably uh, in my age bracket, or even a few of you that may be a little older, uh, there are many stories, if you follow Jesus, where he loves to say, jump. Um, and uh, that did not start with Van Halen. That started with Jesus. And um, thank you for those of you who know that song. I appreciate that. So uh, I would go back to the 90s. Uh, Catherine and I got married in the early 90s. We had a huge heart for global mission. We had a huge heart for the city. We actually worked with a varsity in Chicago at UIC. For many years, but what we wanted to do was get overseas. We, Catherine grew up in Brazil and we wanted to be overseas. Quite honestly, we wanted to raise our children overseas. It was not completely great commission minded. We really just wanted to get out of here. Truth be told, we were at Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton and we loved the church, but we did not love the Western suburbs of Chicago. We had no affiliation there. I'm from the great state of Indiana. She grew up in Brazil, not Brazil, Indiana. There is one. But Brazil, South America, I had to sort out my auntie the first time she met Catherine and thought she'd driven an hour over to visit. I had to tell her, no, actually, Aunt Jane, she comes from South America. Anyway, all right. So our heart was global. Our heart was to get overseas. And our church, Resurrection, had gone through three different divisions over the course of a year and a half. We had been a church that had been in the hundreds and the 90s. We saw an Easter vigil where there were a thousand folks gathered at an Easter vigil. And we had dwindled down to about 150. At that point, uh, there weren't a lot of options, very honestly. And we were asked, would we leave the church? And that became a huge decision point for us. Because that is really not what we were planning on doing. We'd rented that whole time. God hadn't brought us children yet. We were ready to launch. And we looked at the work and Honestly, I would love to have been asked to be a leader of resurrection prior to all the divisions. That would have been amazing. But they never would have asked the 31-year-old at that point for good reason. So we had to really work through with the Lord, is that what you're calling us to do? We want to go. Why would you have us stay? I mean, come on. Doesn't we know we have enough pastors as it is? Right? That was a serious question for us. We worked that through. We sought the Lord. Especially for Catherine, it was a huge sacrifice to consider staying in the States. And he spoke to us about his economy and how he works his spiritual currency and how he likes to control his gospel portfolio and put he, what, what he wear, well, how he will do it. And we submitted to what became clear to us a call to stay. So we were called and we started in 1999 to serve resurrection in that leadership role. That was a huge jump of faith for us. Here was the provision. 
is that in that time of immense pressure and strain and fear and more than a few nights of panic, how would we do this? What would happen to the church that we love that had dwindled down to uh, a group of folks in a rental space? The Lord led us, and my brother actually gave me a book by a, a pastor named Jim Cimbala. Many were reading this book 20 years ago called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. And Pastor Jim Cimbala simply said, build your church on prayer and fasting. And we'd read that in the Bible, but it really helped to have a testimony of another pastor who had been called to take a leap in his work in Brooklyn, New York. And he promised us, based on the Bible, it would actually be effective. So we literally bought like 20 copies of that book, passed it out to our leadership team and said, what if at this moment of incredible dimness and lack of vigor in the life of our church and in the heartbreak of somebody who had left with nothing to lose, what if we just decided that we're going to take him seriously, the, the word of God seriously and gather for prayer meetings every Sunday and pray our way to whatever God would do next. And by God's anointing, that's precisely what we did. Resurrection now has a beautiful building. She's grown a lot. She's developed a lot. But it's really important, and our testimony really matters, that whatever has happened at that church has happened because we really believe that about 15 to 20 folks who had Abrahamic faith gathered in a broken down building in a little unromantic space with asbestos healing walls and floor that was not unlike this linoleum and put a little circle of chairs like that at four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. And I'd always wonder, is anybody gonna come? And for months, we met, fasted, and prayed. And we cried out to God and said, please do something of such power and of such fruitfulness that you would give us a testimony. And slowly, very slowly when you were living through it, person by person, leader by leader, servant by servant, God rebuilt our church. And that gave us the muscle of Abrahamic faith so that when God called us to move into a building, when God called us to help plant the diocese, when God told us to focus less on numerical growth, the more multiplication growth and the multiply and plant churches, every time that time came, we actually went back and are going back yet again in the life of our diocese. So what if it really does come down to prayer and fasting? What if poverty of spirit plays out in the prayer meeting of men and women who have little faith, but enough to show up and cry out to Jesus to do something in his presence and power? So Emmanuel, proud of where you guys are right now, proud of your 10 year pilgrimage. I pray you'll respond to Jesus' call to jump as Father Aaron preached this morning. And I pray that you'll find that the greatest provision, the greatest provision will be a faith to pray and fast.
and have a testimony to give to your next gen. Praise the Lord. Can we pray, I pray for you all. Catherine, would you come on up and pray with me for Emmanuel, Father Aaron and Laura, Vestry, their team, people of God here. Father in heaven, we want to just thank you for Emmanuel. Brothers and sisters, could you all just stand while we pray for you? You're, we just thank you. God's called you to stand on the edge of the pool. And we thank you that you're listening for the voice of the Father to jump. And Father in heaven, we just pray now for our family here, for our brothers and our sisters. Lord, we thank you that you've given Catherine and me and our church so many adventures. That in the time, Lord, we sometimes wish the adventure would be over. But traveling on as Abram did, we were able to have a testimony. And we're asking you, Father, to give this church a testimony. A testimony that is concrete. A testimony that has the details that can be told and can be told with the highlights that their children and those that are still to come and the unbelievers who have yet to believe and will come to faith here at this church will be given as the greatest of inheritance. I pray you'll give them faith. I pray you'll give them the desire to cry out to God for the power of God. I pray that you will protect them, Lord, from ever leaning on their own understanding. I thank you, Lord, for the generosity that's marked this church. And I pray that they will give generously. They'll be so kingdom responsive Others would view them as worldly irresponsible as you call them to give generously. But Lord, I pray that more than anything else, you'll give them a testimony of the power of God, of the love of God, of poverty of spirit playing out in the prayer meeting in prayer and fasting. Lord, I thank you for those words <clears throat> that it is the Father's great joy to give us his kingdom. And Lord, I thank you that the kingdom is our inheritance, but um, it does take faith to step into it. And I pray, Lord, that you would grant to this church, to this congregation, and, and to individuals and to families um, more of your kingdom. And I pray that you would stir up desire even now for the kingdom of God that would make the desire for the things of the world pale in comparison. Lord, those things that we can't necessarily see and touch right now, but are promises from you that we can engage with <clears throat> your world. And Lord, I'm just asking for that now, an impartation of more of your kingdom and that uh, guarantee of the inheritance, which is the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, stir up your Holy Spirit, stir up longing for your Holy Spirit, stir up um, petition for your Holy Spirit to come and fill more and make space in us to fill uh, with your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.